Welcome to episode 13 of the podcast where the title is what we do, Whiskey and IR Theory. In this episode, Patrick and I discuss David Campbell's writing security. We actually recorded this episode way back in August, and it's kind of a sign of the times that we've only been able to edit it in the last few weeks. And you know, I've really got nothing to add to that. So let's get part one started. So I think this is our second attempt to <laughs> record a podcast about David Campbell's writing security. Hopefully it isn't cursed. Do you want to do the honors? Tell us a little bit about this guy whose who's work we're reading. Sure, sure. So, so David Campbell has had a really fascinating career. So according to his bio on his website, apparently before he went and did his PhD, he was actually a speechwriter and a press secretary for a senator, senator in Australia. Um, and then he taught IOR for 20 years or so in different places in Australia and the U.S., uh, including Johns Hopkins in the United States. And then he was at uh, Newcastle in the United Kingdom. Then he uh, took a few years of being just kind of a visiting professor. Between 2015 and 2020, he was the senior man in senior management of the World Press Photo Foundation in Amsterdam. And he was the director of programs and outreach. Um, and nowadays, the only academic affiliation that he has is he is an honorary professor at the School of Political Science International Studies at the University of Queensland. So this is someone who has had an academic career and an outside of academic career and he's kind of moved back and forth between those worlds in fascinating ways. And even though his work for the last 15, 20 years or so has been really dominated by questions of the visual and visual representation and photography, uh, the work that we're talking about today isn't really about that. Uh, his early academic work was not really about visuality or visual politics uh, as much as it was about identity and a kind of a post-structural approach to thinking about foreign policy. So he's he's had an interesting career both in terms of his occupational locations and in terms of the intellectual concerns. This is a text-based argument. I don't mean that it's just in book form. <laughs> I mean in the sense that he's studying text mostly. But there's a pretty natural evolution from this kind of argument to looking at visual rhetoric or visuality. Oh, I agree. There's there's certainly a pathway here that makes sense. It's interesting, though, to see a scholar whose initial work is, as you say, very textual, very kind of formal, verbal, discursive, moving into doing things that are really not at all verbal discursive, either in terms of the analysis that he's doing or in terms of the kind of publication outlet. So because he's doing more photography nowadays, so... I mean, that is, I think, the big difference if you talk about the so-called visual turn or aesthetic turn with its visual component that we're seeing in the field right now. People are talking about cartoons or images, but they're doing so in the context of standard uh, IR academic articles. There's that whole visual, there's that whole imagery and securitization material, for example. And the visual global politics, uh, the edited volume that Roland Blanker put together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there's certainly that. And, and David Campbell is part of that group, although increasingly his production is visual production rather than academic written production. So Right. I get, this is what I was trying to get at, uh, which is the idea that while we've had people move into the visual as an area of analysis and as a, as a source of explanation, as something that... that you know, they're arguing is driving or constituting uh, international life or international politics. I don't think people have gone 
so far just completely outside of the kind of medium, right? That is, they've actually done pictures of things. You know, they're, mm -hmm. that is, photo. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what, I know you're what saying. I'm trying to say. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, like most of our journals haven't caught up with this yet, right? I mean, if people are doing visual politics, it's not like they're they're doing photo essays. Most people aren't, right? They're writing about visual objects, but they're writing about them and they're putting them in standard kinds of journals and, and they're reproducing them that way. Um, if they really wanted to go and do photo essays, I mean, we, we almost we almost don't really have the the scholarly media to be able to actually like produce and review that, right? So it's really going further down that road, both kind of methodologically and theoretically, I guess. I guess what I would say is that most of what we do that involves visual media, whether it's work on film or, or work on photographs, work on uh, cartoons, all of that sort of stuff, most of that work treats the visual as an object of analysis, right? Of sort of standard textual analysis. It doesn't make its argument through a visual media. There are some people in the field who make documentaries, and that's probably the closest we have to actually uh, doing international relations through a, a visual or heavily visual media, right? So as you say, you know, if I were to do a photography exhibit on the refugee and I were making my argument that way, that is not common in the field, let's put it that way. Right, right. It's It's not at all common, even though in some ways it might it might be more theoretically consistent with some of the substantive claims that people make about visuality and representation to actually present what they're doing in a more visual medium uh, not very many people do but uh, i have seen some right there, there's people who who do present work in this way i think of someone like sarah sarma's work where she does sort of collages talking a little bit about uh, about questions of war and, and gender identity, but she has the verbal part of the argument, but then she has collages that are also part of this too. Uh, and of course, Diderian has done some of those documentary films, as you mentioned. So there are certainly some people, but it's definitely, definitely a, a small margin. One of the things that I think we're all discovering being in uh, pandemic teaching mode is that it's expensive. Uh, it's very time consuming. Mm -hmm. We're not trained for it. So we're not professionals. Most of us don't have the ability, the time, the inclination, the resources to go out or the talent to go out and become film directors or photographers or you know, rock band musicians and communicate our ideas through our music. Uh, by the way, if you don't know, Patrick is a very skilled amateur photographer. I thank you for saying so. Um, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. There's others. There's other folks, though, other colleagues of ours. Uh, I mean, shout out to our friend Simon Pratt, who some of the stuff that he's been putting up on Facebook uh, during the pandemic, particularly his cat photos, have been absolutely astonishing. Good stuff. Stunning studies of cats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. IR should have room for stunning studies of cats. <laughs> well, if the Internet is made of cats, then so is a large percentage of the things that we do. And there we go. All right. So... So we should talk about this book. Uh, we talk about whiskey. So, uh, oh we right, talk about whiskey. whiskey. I, I didn't even bring whiskey. Wait, oh my god! The title of the podcast is "Whiskey and International Relations." Oh, <laughs> you need. I told you, I don't sleep anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I just stay up all night. I'm living on like my ADHD medication, right? I'm just on amphetamines all the time. Uh, <laughs> 
I should get, we should take it. You know, we should do the do 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 yep, whatever. Yeah. I can't even hum. You know, the, 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 the we should do the intermission music, yes. and I'm gonna go grab. Some go music. go go grab. I don't know how much of this we're gonna keep in the actual podcast. This is just the warm up. This is just the, the joy warm-up. of editing. It's fine. Yeah. Or we put right. we put this we put this in the outtake roll. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know the thing is that that every time I've said I'm gonna edit this stuff out, I wind up leaving a significant portion of it in because, in my own. Right perverse way i find it highly amusing. but dan this is part of the sh- anyway. this is part of the shtick i mean this is this is some of what we do so you know i think some of yeah, this but i'm not even driving <laughs> i haven't been drinking <laughs> this is just like <laughs> it's the new normal man it's the new normal there we go 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 time is a flat circle um okay go, go find some whiskey <laughs> wow because definitely we need more alcohol to make us even wackier than we already are. How about that sound? Let it do that again. Okay, hear that? That is whiskey. Okay. That is whiskey. What what did you get? But it's from the same boring stash that I've been uh, raiding. Uh, Patrick's going to tell us what the good stuff is, or at least the interesting stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna have to bring some better stuff down to you. Pull some stuff out of the cabinet or something so we can actually drink the same whiskey. All right, so tell us about the whiskey selection. What are we pairing with, what are we drinking with writing security? Are we drinking security? We're drinking with, drinking security, yes. Um, well, given that one of the points that Campbell makes several times during this book is that the United States is the imagined community par excellence, and there's a, a lot of ways that American exceptionalism is a, a thread that kind of runs through the analysis here. I thought it might be sort of intriguing to break open some American single malt whiskey. There is, in fact, such a thing as American single malt whiskey, not much, but there are a few distilleries in the United States that are making things the same way that they would be made in Scotland. Uh, This stuff here is from North Carolina. It is called Rua, and I discovered it when I was down giving a talk at Duke uh, a couple of years ago and managed to pick up a bottle of it, and now I actually get to open it up. So so that is a good thing. Since, of course, part of the whiskey pairing here on this show is giving me an excuse to open some of the things that I've had sitting in the whiskey cabinet for a while. It's the gift that keeps on giving, Patrick. Exactly, exactly. Although for the first for, for the first time in a long time, the, the net stock of whiskey that I have is actually going down because, of course, I'm not traveling. So I'm not hitting any duty frees, and I'm not running into sort of things in other countries where I'm able to pick up a bottle or two and stick it in my luggage. So like the total number of bottles in the house is actually decreasing for the first time in a long time. Mm. Reminds me, uh, before we have our whiskey, mm-hmm. that uh, we have had a request, or multiple requests actually, but one public request, to release the whiskey list. Yes. And it seems to me that I can put that on the YouTube site. I can put that on the Facebook page. I can tweet it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I need it from you. Yes. That would require me to actually go back and remember exactly what I chose for each particular thing. So I got to go back and look at the look at the podcast and see what see what we've done. And then I can draw that list up. Keep in mind, it's it's usually within the first 10 minutes. (laughs) Usually within the first 10 minutes. Yes. Of the podcast. All right. So. So. Okay. So. Cheers. 
Cheers. Salut. Slanger. How is it? Hmm. It's interesting because it's not anywhere near as sort of peated as you would get it with even a, even an unpeated Scottish, but the the sherry character is really really powerful. So kind of almost tastes in some ways like a young McAllen okay. a little bit. Um, though not quite as complex as a McAllen because of course they've got the older stock that they can mix in even to their younger stuff. So my understanding is that these folks have only actually been making the whiskey for a few years. I mean they, they do gin and bourbons and those kinds of things, but it takes a little longer to produce some good uh, good whiskey. So, but it is still whiskey, so it does still fit the whiskey and IR title. When we tried to discuss this book uh, a couple of weeks ago, that was before. We, we thought we'd, we thought just for your information, we thought we had recorded half an episode or three quarters of an episode. And I open up the Zoom recording and it's just a mess. There's all sorts of things wrong with it. It turns out that there are audio issues. And at the end of the day, I was I could spend hours cleaning this up or we could record another one. <laughs> So, so we have been through part of this book before. In some ways, it's good. Maybe we'll be more efficient, although judging from what's been happening so far, that, that's probably not going to be the case. Uh, but it also can be a little bit bad because you sort of have already said your stuff excitedly. So let me, do, let me get the ball rolling with something that we did talk about, which was that for both of us, this was a fairly important book intellectually. So it's the 90s. Uh, we're both. Uh, when does this come out? When's the first edition? 1992 right. was the first edition. So this is so. So I'm in college when this comes out. Um, so are you? I don't have a second edition, which is why you're going to be responsible for telling us about the differences between them. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've been doing some critical and post-structural theory in college, not a lot, mostly in the form of women's studies courses, which is a kind of interesting way to to work into Lacan, for example, who I could not explain to you for my life now. And so when I started to encounter constructivism, which was the thing that made me think, oh, this IR academia thing might be kind of interesting, it struck me as essentially low-hanging fruit. This was the sort of stuff that didn't require a lot of effort to get to intellectually. I think this was probably one of the first works I read that, although it's very accessibly written, uh, is really built around a much more critical security studies uh, infrastructure than, for example, the kind of cats and sign norms work that I think was what most of us were, which is what we were, which is what everybody was reading at the time, roughly. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, my encounter with this is, is in some ways similar and in some ways a little bit different. Uh, my entry into a lot of critical post-structural stuff was actually through literary theory courses. Um, I'd actually taken some classes with uh, Sheila Tihon, who had been a student of J. Hillis Miller's, who was one of the Yale Deconstruction School, so it's like directly in that lineage. And in looking for and talking to some of my IR faculty about how one might incorporate some of those insights about the undecidability of language and such, then this was the thing that was quickly recommended to me. So I read the first edition of Writing Security, and I think it's fair to say that this is the first book of IR that I read that I could 
this is going to sound weird, but I'm going to say it anyway, that I could imagine writing. Not that what I would write would be as good as writing security, but I looked at it, oh, you know, I could, I could imagine making those arguments. Like, that makes sense to me. Other kinds of more mainstreamy IR that I had read, it was interesting, but mostly I was very critical of some of the assumptions or some of the, the ways that the analysis was being carried out and so on. And though I had read, we talked about uh, Cynthia Enloe's Bananas, Beaches, and Bases in an earlier podcast, and that was certainly one that opened up a vista of things. It, I couldn't imagine, having read that book, I couldn't imagine, like, yeah, I could write something like that. This book I read and said, oh, you know, I could do this. This is something I could actually imagine myself doing. And that led, among other things, to when I was applying for graduate school, one of the places I applied was Johns Hopkins because Campbell was there. And it was the only place I applied that I did not get into. <laughs> and so I did not go and get a chance to work with Campbell. Uh, but we did have some nice email contact uh, before then. You know, basically, I wrote him a fan letter. Like you do when you're an undergraduate student, you read a book that you find is really good. And you're like, wow, this is just so awesome. But it was a very important book in that way because it, it helped solidify for me that gave me an image of what empirically grounded critical scholarship might look like and something that I could actually envision myself doing. So, And I think that when we were talking about this before, you drew a line, and I think it was an, an accurate line, between a lot of stuff that goes on in this book and then my dissertation of my first book in which I'm certainly not doing exactly what Campbell did but there's a there's a lineage there in terms of taking over some of the intellectual moves so well I think that your book besides the study of US foreign policy and the way in which you are linking up you know just mechanically the way you're linking up questions of identity to US foreign policy the the big thing that sort of connects your work with this work is is Campbell's insight, although I think there are people who've made this claim before him, that foreign relations are about demarcation of self and other, and that a lot of what happens in foreign relations is about both problematizing foreign policy as an activity, but also seeing foreign policy as potentially constitutive of national identity rather than just national identity driving foreign policy. I, I, I would agree. I think your work is in that idiom. Which is not to say, of course, and I think you, you said this, but just to amplify it, not to say that David Campbell is the only person who ever said that. He was one of the first that did it in an empirically sustained way, and it's certainly the first one I personally encountered. But then I think of something like Yoda Weldus's work, which does something very similar. But I didn't encounter Yoda Weldus's work until I was already in grad school and sort of well along my, my own research trajectory, where this book I ran into at a somewhat more perhaps impressionable period of my intellectual formation when I was uh, in undergrad and then was able to, uh, to, to run with it from there. I actually remember writing an essay for a student journal in which I took the film, uh, the Indiana Jones series, the three Indiana Jones films, well, at least the first and the third, and argued that what we're seeing there is a kind of demarcation of a particular kind of other which has implications so basically doing a kind of Campbellian style analysis here with the two levels of foreign policy and foreign policy which we'll get into a little bit later but looking at the the popular representations of otherness and how that helped to inform official representations of otherness which I think is certainly one of the many threads that comes out of this. Campbell, in fact, argues that the United States as a political community has really severe perennial problems with fashioning a common identity. I mean, we're this large, multi-ethnic 
federation. The United States has always had a presence of an excluded population within. So his argument, in a sense, is that aggressiveness, assertiveness in U.S. foreign policy is related to this fundamental unease about who we are and the inability to define who we are, which makes us even doubly reliant on foreign relations as the mechanism uh, for sorting out internal identity. Right. That's mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's definitely fair. And the, the, the phrasing that, that Campbell uses several times, he talks about every he says every national every sovereign political community is imagined so using that Benedict Anderson notion of an imagined community. But the United States is like more imagined than most, uh, which which is uh, which is which is an interesting an interesting formulation and somewhat problematic as you'll as I think we'll, we'll get into a little bit. Uh, but one doesn't necessarily have to accept the claim that the United States has is, is distinctive in this to buy the broader claim, which is that states articulate themselves through these rhetorics of danger, through these demarcations of threatening others, and that in some ways the best threatening other for the sake of showing up your identity is the one that's both al- already inside and threatening to subvert you from the inside, but also outside. Then you can clamp down all over the place, and you can shore up your boundaries, and you can enforce discipline at home. You can you can use that as a way of making sure everybody lines up behind the need to defend from the external, and so on and so forth. So the, the other the best other of all, the most useful other for this kind of, of state identity practice is precisely the one that is both inside and outside at the same time. So because then it's everywhere, then you can justify all kinds of things. And this is why, I mean, to, to be a little bit reductive about it, Campbell is sort of what happens when you mix a, a Schmidian project of the type that was increasingly popular in critical theory, precisely because of the idea of the friend-foe distinction, the inside-outside distinction being fairly central to his political theory, uh, and performativity-based arguments, right? uh, I think is what sort of, what, when, when you kind of put them together, I think is kind of where you're at. Is mm-hmm. that fair? It is. It is. I would, I would agree. I think that in many ways what Campbell, I mean, he doesn't actually say this exactly, but I don't think he would disagree with the formulation, that in some ways foreign policy is the performance of fear, and it is the performance of a particular kind of threat and fear that then requires us to defend something. And in kind of typical Butlerian fashion, the appeal to fear and the, the need to defend is what produces the core rather than the other way around. So the identity isn't something that causes the foreign policy. It's the self-other demarcation that produces the effect of identity. And Campbell suggests that that effect is never fully produced once and for all. It always has to be produced and reproduced, which is, again, a kind of Butlerian resonance of the argument. You never reach a point at which you can stop performing the threat to the nation because that is perpetual that kind of of instability of the border continues uh, all the time. And part of the genius of this book empirically is that he's arguing with the sort of typical historiography of U.S. foreign relations in which the Cold War is founded on some kind of truce between the major political parties. There's a broad-reaching foreign policy consensus, and this holds everything together. And Campbell argues that 
that's actually the wrong order. It's not the consensus that drives things. The consensus is produced. The consensus is produced by the continued deployment of these rhetorics of fear and danger. So it's sometimes people misread this book, I think, as as a kind of revisionist foreign policy historiography. But that's not really what Campbell is doing. In some ways, his argument is much more radical than the idea that, well, the threat of the Soviet Union was something that was uh, amplified by U.S. business interests for their own needs. Like his argument is much more fundamental than that and much more, much more far reaching than that. It's not that there's any particular doer that is strategically misusing these rhetorics. It's the use of these rhetorics is what's producing the idea of a community that needs to be defended. So indeed, he opens chapter one with a problematization of the Cold War story. The demise of the Cold War has been heralded. To proclaim the end of the Cold War assumes that we know what the Cold War was. Moreover, the very act of proclaiming the end of the Cold War serves to write history in such a way that the Cold War becomes an era, the understanding of which is not problematic. The very discourse of the end of the Cold War creates a kind of closure of meaning around it. And very soon, we're into an interesting hybrid of kind of what I would call risk society arguments about the globalization of contingency and then Derridian undecidability. Undecidability works in his argument in part because it is the undecidability of things like identity and meeting that require the constant production and reproduction. As you say, there's no conspiratorial nation or notion of it. It's not business groups trying to hype the threat per se, but it creates a consistent, almost existential need to go out and, and find threats and to define threats so that you can define the self. So he then talks about the idea that, that in fact, the, the very act of securing the meaning of the Cold War is a way of what does he say here? His targets are people like Chomsky, who he says that the standard left criticism of the Cold War one that you've just described, is one that does not adequately challenge the construct. It accepts the construct and it says it was thought wrong or it was wrong to pursue or we did horrible things in the Cold War rather than look at the very construction of the Cold War itself. Yeah, the, the, Cold, the Cold War is, is an effect of a particular kind of discursive or rhetorical deployment of these notions of fear and, and danger and so on. And so it would be wrong to begin with trying to theorize the Cold War and then move from there because the Cold War is endogenous to this, this very set of processes. One of the things that's really fascinating about that first chapter too is that he makes the point, which was one of those points that really stuck with me uh, from the first, very first time I read it, that that what was interesting about the Cold War documents and what's interesting about looking at the history of the Cold War is realizing that it was not that anti-communism and the fear of threats to the American way of life was some sort of, of meaningless talk that was being used just for public relations purposes and that there was some real agenda behind there someplace where these rational foreign policy people were figuring out what needed to be done. What Campbell points out in pretty meticulous detail is that you find this same kind of identity project going on even in secret documents. You find this going on in supposedly private spaces where 
a lot of, say, traditional realist arguments would lead us to believe that actually the elites are not bamboozled by the rhetoric that they use to garner votes and to get the people on their side, but that they're actually kind of clear-headed about these things. And Campbell, in very kind of post-structural fashion, uh, basically says, no, there's no final sort of floor here. It's just you keep digging and there's just more rhetoric and it's just more and more and more. And so you just keep going down and you find it's the same set of tropes, the same kinds of deployments. Before we move on to chapter two, I want to take us back to the introduction. We've already described some of the basics of his argument. You know, as he says at the end of the introduction, the constant articulation of danger through foreign policy is thus not a threat to a state's identity or existence. It is the condition of possibility. Uh, for that idea. While the objects of concern change over time, the techniques and exclusions by which those objects are constituted as dangers persist. So there are a couple of things going on here that I, I want to point out. The first is, rereading that kind of struck me how much we take for granted now the idea that foreign policy or security policy can be productive of identity. So I read that sentence now, I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> but that's actually is a really profound inversion of the standard way of understanding uh, security policy. Mm -hmm. The realist way of understanding security policy and the realists uh, have a very strong hold on, well, they, they are security studies in this period, more or less, um, you know, says that the foreign policy is about, is about protecting a essential or already existent or concrete identity, the territory of the state, the regime of the state, the ideology of the state from external foes. And so it may seem now kind of obvious, or even if you don't agree with it, it's a line of argument that we've gotten used to. But it is a really profound inversion, right, at this point. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that, and this is actually, I think, why one of the reasons why the argument, even though it's very grounded in, in some pretty uh, intense post-structuralist argumentation, it is an argument about recurring mechanisms. Right. Right. So there are isomorphisms in the process, in, in the, not even necessarily the processes, there are isomorphisms in the, in the mechanisms that are used via foreign relations to secure the self. And that's an interesting move to make. I don't, you know, he, he, re he rejects epistemic realism at one point, but I think it's why the argument so easily travels beyond a straight up kind of critical style argument of the 80s and 90s, because you don't have to be a post-structuralist, you don't have to be a post-modernist, we were still using that term in the early 90s, to describe <laughs> uh, this bundle of stuff. You don't have to be a reflexivist. Is it reflectivist or reflexivist? I can't, I can't remember. To actually see a kind of causal logic here that you can wrap your head around, even if that's not his attention. Right. And even if he explicitly rejects the language of causation, which is interesting. Um, you talk about the rejection of, of epistemic realism, which he does like as early as page four. And he says, you know, this is not, this is, and, and it's interesting because the move he makes there on, on, on page four is a, it's pretty typical for critical scholars of this era to basically contrast epistemic realism with a logic of interpretation that allows various things to play and go out in different directions and eschews any notion of a correct answer and so on and so forth, which is an interesting way to start a book that then goes on for a couple hundred pages to rigorously document something that looks an awful lot like an answer to a question about why the United States does what it does. I understand the, the point that, that he's trying to make there, and others of this time are sort of making, making similar kinds of gestures. What they're rejecting 
even though they're using the language of correct answers, they're not rejecting correct answers. They're rejecting the notion of a single unitary correct answer that corresponds to a set of intuitions about objects that exist in the world. And the problem is that then they mischaracterize that as epistemic realism. And it's not epistemic realism because it really isn't about correspondence with things that really exist. It's about reinforcing the received wisdom about the kinds of things that exist, particularly with an IR, which up until this point had pretty much naturalized the state and the sovereign state as an actor in a very unreflective way. So even though the terms that they're using are terms that are, seem much more like philosophy of science kinds of terms, it seems to me that it's, it's, the intervention's actually a little bit different. It's not quite as grandiose as that. It's really saying we need to look at these things differently. It's more of an ontological intervention. Like we need to conceptualize these objects in different kinds of ways. So that, that's actually reminding me of how, frankly, how bad a lot of epistemological writing and philosophy of science writing was in the 80s and, and early 90s. There just wasn't a burden on people to really try to, to go really deep into the area in a way that I think there, I mean, it's, it makes things difficult, right? Because if you want to do that, you have to be like you, you have to be a specialist and have to engage fairly fully in, in learning an entire body of theory or a, a sli even just a slice of that body of theory. But you see a lot of language getting thrown around in the 80s and 90s, even more so than now where it's just things are slightly off, right? It's fine for him to say epistemic realism is bad in the context of what he's talking about, which is the idea that there is a kind of really real Cold War out there or something like that. But it's not, not wrong, but it's off. It's too sweeping. You know, it picks up a, a large-scale philosophical denunciation of a whole way of construing knowledge. And really, the target is narrower than that. Right? The, the target here is dominant traditional representations of foreign policy and, in particular, of the Cold War. And saying there's something wrong with our analytic, there's something wrong with our theory, that it obscures all of the what... What I think I what I would call I don't know that Campbell would like this particular term, but what I would call like the practical cultural work that is required to sustain the narrative of the Cold War, and that's obscured if you start with the Cold War as a kind of natural object, and a lot of traditional writing on the Cold War, especially up to this time, a lot of traditional writing on security up to this time, really did that. It really took these things as natural objects, or quasi-natural objects. And so Campbell is kind of opening up that space in, in interesting ways. It is unfortunate that the term, the, the rejection of epistemic realism, it's like, that, that, that's too much. That's not, that's not actually what he means, I think, in, in a, a strict philosophical sense. We need to move on to chapter two, but one way of grasping how this argument is really prescient is to look at the ways in which struggles over the meaning of the Cold War or articulations of meanings, understandings of the Cold War have played a fairly important role in U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years. Yes. Two examples that come to mind. The first example is the way in which a lot of neoconservative foreign policy thought during the 1990s, during the era of being excluded from government and pumping ideological iron in the think tanks, as John Eikenberry put it. There are a lot of reasons we went into Iraq, and there were a lot of different interests and a lot of different groups involved. But the, one of the reasons why the neoconservatives got so much attention was that they were really prominent. They had a very coherent kind of master, master narrative about what was happening 
uh, in a way that you don't necessarily see in Rumsfeld's, I'm going to try out my military and show you what I can do with a small force and remote strike complexes kind of way does. There are arguments, and, and we've talked about this before, I don't think on, on, on the podcast, are really premised in a reading of the way the Cold War ended. Because the whole argument is that the Cold War ended because Reagan combined military steadfastness and a military buildup with moral clarity and moral force. And he conjoined those two, and they were, they were essentially force multipliers. It's an idealist project, but it's not an idealist project that puts its faith in institutions. It's not an idealist project that uh, subordinates U.S. interests to, to dictators in the Human Rights Council. It's one that uses American might to support American values and American values to support American might. And then the story is that this wins the Cold War. And this, the walls come tumbling down, and the, in the, you get the revolutions in Eastern Europe that eventually then cascade back into the Soviet Union itself. But they were essentially nationalist uprising. It is contingent that democracy becomes the object of nationalist aspirations in the 1980s. And that's important because they then take the story and they say, aha, if we invade Iraq, if we combine this moral clarity with military force, all of these authoritarian regimes in the Middle East are just like the regimes in Eastern Europe. And if we go in and we topple one, we have this demonstration effect, we show it's possible, they'll all collapse like a house of cards. Like a set of dominoes hitting a house of cards or something like that. Right. <laughs> Fast forward to today, and the Cold War metaphor is, of course, being reached for as a way of understanding what's happening between the United States and China and what the nature of that conflict ought to look like. Of course, it, the Cold War is just is one way, and it's one particularly unusual way, for great powers to be rivalrous with one another. The Cold War is not the Cold War. There is not one thing called the Cold War, and Campbell's right, the Cold War is a, const is a construct itself. There is a politics to how we understand what the Cold War was, and that politics has clear implications. So the, what, the example when you were saying that, that I was thinking of was the, 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 the strange career of Sam Huntington and the whole notion of the clash of civilizations, which like, the heart of the clash of civilizations really is a particular reading of the Cold War, right? It's a reading of what the United States is doing in Europe. And the United States is, in, according to the Huntingtonian version of this, the United States is defending the West in Europe. And that's a natural thing for it to do because all those other Easterners out there, they're, they're a different civilization. And so if you understand the Cold War as being about a kind of civilizational core, then that household has certain kinds of policy implications. Now, of course, for Huntington, the policy implications are not are sort of anti-imperial, but civilizational block. So then we have these civiliz multipolar civilizational blocks in the world that kind of don't interfere with each other. But again, well, where they wind up, but, but, where, but no, but where they wind up, right, is a very classic paleoconservative position, right. which is that we ought to focus on keeping our common culture intact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which really translates into being wary of all these Latin Americans coming in, what with their like of socialism and their Catholic values, yep. uh, and they're particularly Latin American or Hispanic versions of Catholic values. So, so we want to secure the homeland uh, and purify the homeland in this Campbellian sense, not be involved in these imperial projects, which are doomed to fail and which uh, can't succeed anyway because you can't impose your civilization right. on another civilization. The very reason why immigration is a threat to American identity, American democracy, is the same reason why we can't go create democracy in Iraq. Exactly. And what's interesting is that neither of those two readings that we've just given of the Cold War are entirely wrong. 
like there's threads in the Cold War documents themselves that kind of point to this, but neither of them are completely correct as like what the Cold War was about. Um, and they're sort of particularly partialized versions that sort of pushes off in particular directions. The nice thing about Campbell's framework is it actually allows us to situate those contemporary debates as an extension of the same process and say, okay, these things have perpetually been contested. Even if you go back into the Cold War, there was never a moment where the Cold War settled down. So it's just been contestation over contestation over contestation. And so therefore what you get is something more like a genealogy of contestations rather than a theory in the kind of substantialist sense of here's an essence that has certain kinds of, of causal powers and pushes it in particular directions. You don't get that. Instead, you just get we're going to continually be arguing about what this means. And it is the argument and the, the, the deployment of rhetorics that produces outcomes rather than some essence of something here, either called the Cold War or called America. So one way to put this is that I had mentioned earlier that one of the frames that, that people are pushing to understand Sino-U.S. rivalry is that it's a new Cold War. And you can see how there's a certain kind of pattern matching that does that. Authoritarian capitalism a regime that worries about domestic instability and engages in domestic repression to maintain itself, a regime that seems to be, if not spreading its values in the sense of trying to replicate China's everywhere, at least sort of making, trying to make the world safe for mm -hmm. its brand of authoritarianism in a way that is contradicting longstanding U.S. foreign policy impulses. And so you can sort of see how you have the combination of kind of looks like maybe we're heading towards bipolarity and it looks like we have a incipient ideological rivalry that is playing out now uh, in the global south and elsewhere that you can sort of see how you would take that and say, well, we, we, could, we could, through these pattern matching, we are headed into a new Cold War with China. Now, the point I was originally going to make is that, in a sense, we're just singing that into existence. If we treat conflicts with China as meaning that we are in a Cold War with China, yeah. certain logical things would follow from that that we would, make, we, would make, we would make real upon the world. But the more important thing is not that. The more important thing is that to the extent that we, if we decide that we are in a Cold War with China, we will be, of course, narrating what the Cold War was. Right. Right. So it is through the process of it's through the process of deciding that we are in a Cold War with China and what that means to be in a Cold War with China, that we constitute the Cold War uh, of our imagination, right, of our past. And then purport to use that constituted Cold War as the justification for doing what it is we're doing in the first place. So it's that standard kind of in temporal inversion. We've done it now, constituted the thing, and now we go back and look at the thing and say, oh, okay, well, that means we've got to go do this. So on fifty page 51, in fact, when Campbell says, foreign policy needs to be understood as giving rise to a boundary rather than acting as a bridge, right? It is the act of, of demarcation and I think what we've just done in this discussion here is we've, we've pointed out that it's not just a spatial demarcation, but also kind of a temporal demarcation, that the act of demarcating is what gives rise to the effect of these entities that are then going out and doing things. So it's the, it's the creation of the boundary in ways to sort of flash forward into something out of our own intellectual biographies for a second here. Uh, always reminds me of the the way that Andrew Abbott talks about changing from boundaries of things to things of boundaries that there's a very clear kind of 
ontological or 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 maybe maybe mechanistic processual similarity here this idea that it's not that things have boundaries or states have boundaries and then they have a foreign policy about things outside of them but that the foreign policy the policy of saying that's foreign and now we're going to relate to it gives rise to the boundary between the foreign and the domestic in the first place so it's the bounding act that is kind of the important thing and the strategic deployment or, or creative redeployment of history as a way of justifying that. So it's just part of the same process. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's in that same paragraph where he talks about uh, yet again, the state is an effect of foreign policy, not a cause of foreign policy, yep. which I think is, is consistent not only with a, a post-structuralist view, but as you say, with a kind of broader relational and processual worldview, it's consistent with, performativity approaches, it's consistent with a lot of uh, contemporary practice theory, right, where the United States would be made through the practices of its the people it calls diplomats and presidents, etc., as they engage in, in other officials as they engage in foreign policy. Exactly. Chapter three is on foreign policy and identity. Uh, and this begins with stuff that is really, I think, uh, your bailiwick, Hobbes and the artificial person. Yes. <laughs> and Hobbes and the constitution of inside and outside. So do you have anything you want to say about that? So I always found it interesting when in graduate school, when I think we both sat in, in classes with David Johnston. And uh, it, was, it was not until, I think it was, a, it was one of the... What, it was a few weeks into the class before I realized that the reading of Hobbes that Johnston was giving was in fact the reading I'd encountered in Campbell because that's that's one of his main sources is this David Johnston reading it Leviathan and the rhetoric of fear type stuff um, and yeah, Julian Franklin was not a fan that was always interesting to go no. between the two classes <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and I, I, I kind of like Johnston's reading um, I mean you know for, for me the, the indeterminacy in Hobbes is I think a little bit more epistemological right it's more about it's more about the question of, of, of knowledge but um, but I do think that the that, that it's a it's a fascinating reading and it's a fascinating intervention into an IR field that usually read you know three paragraphs of Leviathan excerpted from context and didn't really go into sort of what Hobbes was actually talking about but reading Leviathan as a rhetorical intervention I think is is the important move here and the, pushing the idea that what Hobbes was doing was not identifying an essence of a state somewhere, but in fact telling you how the essence of the state is produced and telling you how the essence of the state is generated by the social contract, but more importantly by fears of what happens when the social contract breaks down. And that, I think, is... If you didn't realize how IR had used Hobbes up until this point, it would seem to me kind of odd that the argument would spend so much time talking about Hobbes. But if you understand what Hobbes, quote unquote, did in the field of international relations up to this point, then it makes perfect sense that this would be one of the targets that Campbell would need to, to take apart before he could go anywhere else. Because Hobbes was usually pointed to, like, the two paragraphs from Hobbes and three paragraphs from Thucydides was pointed to for the idea that there's a perennial tradition called realism and it's always the same and it's anarchy is bad and state power protects against anarchy. 
and that's a terrible reading of both Hobbes and uh, and Thucydides. Uh, and so Campbell going after Hobbes makes sense in terms of opening up what, what he and Jim George would in a different article call thinking space, right? So just opening things up and allowing people to kind of think this through a little bit, a little bit better. The thing that's also fascinating about it, and I, I will admit I never noticed this in Campbell's argument until I read a review or a critical engagement with Campbell that by Mark Laffey in like Review of International Studies in like 2000 or 2001 or something, um, in which he pointed out that there is this kind of slight functionalist thread that runs through Campbell at, at interesting times. So if I'm thinking here of like looking at something like page 64, in which Campbell refers to the the need to discipline and contain the ambiguity and contingency of the domestic realm. What, it's a little unclear what need means there. This is sort of why earlier on I talked about the argument as being amenable to a more causal mechanisms approach. Because he does have a set of kind of pressures or processes that are supposed, or dispositions that are supposed to kick in repeatedly. But you're right, I mean, that articulation is extraordinarily functionalist. It is at least literally functionalist in that something is produced because of the need of something else. Uh, in the same way that we might say the needs of capitalism produce uh, a universal kindergarten through 12 education, right? Um, or the, the needs of um, the nuclear family uh, and the needs of the maintenance of nuclear family constitute uh, prostitution as a site for funneling male biological urges or whatever there. Who made that argument? Was it Merton? I can't. Some... It might have been. <laughs> it was, the, the, the reason I remember this is not because it involves prostitution, but because it was, I, I heard in the context of an argument about sort of how insanely ridiculous some forms of functionalist arguments were getting by kind of a structural functionalism mm -hmm. were on the extent that not only was everything functional, but dysfunction was then itself becoming functional. And now that I think about it, there's a kind of a parallel here with cultural, with the sort of joke about cultural studies from the late 90s, early 2000s, which is that, you know, essentially this popular cultural artifact uh, upholds the system, upholds power relations. And this one appears to be subverting power relations, but is in fact upholding them through mm -hmm. the act of subversion. But it isn't necessarily functionalist, right, if you posit that the what's driving the need is a set of discourses and practices uh, rooted into a problem of undecidability, which is, I think, what you right. know, he's essentially saying there, what he makes claims like that. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would also agree, and I would want to read him that way. It's the, the phrasing of it, the need phrasing is, is I think, kind of, kind of interesting here, because you could make the same point by saying not that, not that there is a need to discipline and contain the ambiguity and contingency of the domestic realm, but that efforts to contain and discipline the ambiguity and contingency of the domestic realm do certain things. They produce certain kinds of effects. But that language then starts to sound more causal. And Campbell is not a big fan of the language of causation when it comes to this stuff. At later points, a couple of other points in the text, uh, he specifically says, well, you know, these metaphors aren't causal or these rhetorics aren't causal, except that he's talking about the way that particular sorts of deployments produce particular kinds of effects that to me looks an awful lot like cause. I understand what he's rejecting because he's rejecting a certain thin neopositivist deductive nomothetic notion of causation where everything is about general covering laws. 
But he's still, it seems to me, operating in a realm that, at least on a broader construal, we might call causal. And I think that you could phrase, a, you could have a phrase like that that wouldn't be functionalist. You could say it slightly differently if he was not so concerned to avoid the language of causation. Because there are mechanisms in this argument, this, this argument, this book is rife with mechanisms. You know, I was actually just just going ahead to my notes and looking at page 69, which basically I think we lifted wholesale in our 1999 article. Uh, but it's all here, right? Relations, practices, everything that happens in the field is anticipated here uh, around around boundary construction. They, ha these arguments have to be causal mechanisms. But there are two different versions of that. You could say that they are kind of natural necessity mechanisms, or you could say that they are mechanisms that themselves are an effect of underlying discursive configurations and practices. Uh, and so there are mechanisms that have causal dispositions, but they are only locally, contextually mm -hmm. uh, conjured up as they were. They are not really real, would I think be the, the best case you could make for how far away you could, get, you could move away from something like a conventional causal claim or causal mechanism claim to and still have these arguments make sense. Yeah, I agree. You know, there, there is an epistemological claim here, too, where I think those notions of causation are anathema. You know, it's the, the problem of standing outside of, of our cultural field or standing outside of our power knowledge relations or however we want to constitute it. Right? We can't do that. And so we cannot know what is an effect of the discourse versus what is some sort of genuine cause. All we know is the way, all we can observe is the way it is unfolding, right, within the system, the incomplete, undecided system that we're in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Though, of course, then if we, if, if, on a certain construal, that's what it means to know anything about causal relations. <laughs> but, um, but no, I think that there, there is a, there's a definite, what I would call, I think what we would probably both call kind of a configurational analysis mode here where it's really not it's not any one thing and it's not as if you can decompose the various elements that go into something and and precisely figure out exactly what kind of influence they had over the outcome because we're not involved in that kind of, of decontextual generalization instead it's a particular set of combinations that produces things the thrust of this book is not functionalist the thrust of this book i would say is much more critical genealogical than anything else but because of the way that the argument is articulated and because of the rejection of the language of causation at particular points, it lends plausibility to a much more functionalist reading of what Campbell's up to. So even though I'm, I'm not, I don't actually think he is functionalist at the end of the day, but I think the argument lends itself to that a little bit where if he went in a different direction with different notions of causation, I think we could avoid that. The most negative reading I could give it, which is which would be generous and which I, I am totally fine with, is that he is making that his his functionalist arguments can be read as as if functionalist arguments. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the the need is necessarily devoid of, of reasons or mechanisms. It's just that he's not interrogating them. And the need is itself it is a transcendental or existential requirement of the entity to engage in these types of practices, right? Otherwise, by definition, it would cease. It would it would cease to exist. In that sense, yes, it's a it is a functional requirement, but it's a functional requirement that could be disaggregated into a set of linguistic, social, theoretic, and even in some ways uh, historically specific mechanisms that help explain why we got where we are today. I will say that I often throw around like. Well, discourse or practice or performance or, you know, 
linguistic configuration or field, I often throw those terms around when I'm feeling uncertain about the object of what I'm talking about. Well, it's a stew of relational stuff. And so I just kind of throw this language around because I want to be inclusive. I don't really want to drill down onto anything. But here it's entirely appropriate because he is synthesizing a whole set of arguments that come out of all of these traditions. And when he's not drawing on a conscious tradition, he is replicating those arguments. And so again, I, I point to 69, which is where he re-invokes the phrase about foreign policy is not a bridge uh, between pre-existing states. It is not an interaction. <laughs> uh, it is a transaction in the Dewey and Bentley sense. Then it's you know practices that constitute boundaries. The, the, the state is the effect of those practices. The practices are not something owned by the state. This is you know very kind of familiar language, but it's here in the same context of language about Derrida and language about you know, very much more hardcore linguistic turn, textual-based arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, and so kind of you have to shift back and forth, I think, to talk about this book um, because it is very much a kind of intellectual product of uh, accumulation and amalgamation rather mm -hmm. than it doesn't have a I am doing X kind of theory at the outset and now we are in you know, Derrida land, or, or we're in Foucault land, or we're in uh, Agamben land. In fact, people are invoked for their insights, not for their entire theoretical superstructure, which mm -hmm. ironically makes it a lot more accessible. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, because you don't have to actually be an expert on any of these individual theorists to be able to figure out what's going on. And, and Campbell is also trying a variety of different angles to attack the same the same basic received wisdom narrative, right? So, I mean, Foucault, I think, looms... He's not using Foucault as an orthodox Foucauldian, right? He's using Foucault... Which is not to say that his reading of Foucault isn't a particularly good one. What, he's, what I'm saying is he's trying really hard not to do Foucault studies. It's, I'm using Foucault to do various things. So there's a certain kind of intervention here. And it's the intervention that's the important thing. Yeah. So as opposed to the textual fidelity to whichever sort of theoretical source he happens to be drawing on. Right. Page 70. The practices which impose boundaries and establish meaning through a reading of ambiguity, practices that can be said to operate in non-purposive non ways approximated by Bourdieu's understanding of the conductorless orchestration of collective action and improvisation in Foucault's Strategies Without a Known Strategist, usually locate the dangers to man in terms of threats emerging from other domestic societies. So exactly the same thing. There is a concept, a process he's interested in. He is drawing analogies. He's drawing in other people who have made similar claims. But again, this is not this is not quite Foucault's strategies without a knowing strategist, nor is it quite Bourdieu's conductorist orchestration of collective action. Mm -hmm. We're not really, it's just whatever, it's the argument Campbell is making. Right, right. exactly. Um, and then this ties back in the conversation we were having about functionalism uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. so. No, exactly, exactly. thing you get out of the first three chapters is we have to we, the, the culmination point right is the distinction between foreign policy small f small p and foreign policy big f big p so the idea that you have the broader thing called foreign policy which is the constitution of the of the foreign other and then you have official foreign policy capital f capital p as being in Campbell's reading, the thing that then reproduces that logic on an official stage. Now, I'm not, I'm not 
completely 100% sure that you could always maintain the distinction between those two, but certainly heuristically for what he's trying to do, it makes a great deal of sense because you've got a relatively coherent body of texts of official Cold War foreign policy, which he's going to be analyzing, and then you've got a whole series of more diffuse logics of otherness that are floating around that are then being mobilized into this. One of the things that's also fascinating about this, and I think we talked about this once before, but probably worth hauling back up again, is the door that this book and this analytic opens to the study of popular culture. Because if we take Campbell seriously with this official foreign policy and then broader foreign policy distinction seriously, then the places where the self-other relationship is introduced and mapped and constituted probably aren't in formal documents and they probably aren't in formal IR classrooms. So where the heck are they? Uh, chances are you're going to find them in elements of popular culture. So, for instance, when, when Yoda Weldis pulled together that Star Trek project that, that a number of us were involved in, that was the, the central point of it for her, was we should think of Star Trek as being a place that constitutes the self-other relation, that constitutes the, the, the question of what the state is supposed to be doing and why. And then that can be a source, not in the sense that anybody would actually have to cite Star Trek in official foreign policy in order to prove that it was a source, but that you could look at these, these subtle demarcations, these more informal demarcations, and then say, ah, okay, so that's where these, these logics and these rhetorics come from, these sorts of divisions that then get reproduced in the official discourse itself. So there's a huge opening here to a lot of the pop culture work that uh, came afterwards in terms of connecting it. He occasionally name-checks popular culture, so in the Japan chapter, there's a reference to Black Rain, which is a Michael Douglas movie, apparently, that I have no memory of. I'm sure it was awful. But, but um, <laughs> yeah. And he, men he mentions Rising Sun, doesn't he? You know, I was he looking for it. Sun? I thought he did, but I'm not sure if he did, if he does. Like I, Because we talked about it last time, and Rising Sun is such a text of... Yeah. anti-Japanese anxiety and racism and the constitution of it's just everything you could want about representations of Japan that he was talking about is in not even just the book Rising Sun, but the film Rising Sun. The film. Right. The Although film. the book is, is yep. actually even worse. <laughs> I, I, I have never read the book. I've never read the book. I've just seen the movie. Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of there's a lot of statements in the book where the kind of sensei character is in this is a very conscious thing in the book uh, is talking about how the Japanese th see things this way or the Japanese see things that way. So you have to have a cultural, uh, you have to have an index or a cultural codex to unlock the Japanese to understand how to interact right. with them and to understand how dangerous they are and how insidious they are. Or can and be. that's the Sean Connery character in the film, yes. right? Yes. So, <laughs> but yeah, even if he doesn't mention it, like they would, the analysis of, of a film like that would be right in line with what Campbell is is interested in so the other turn here and i i think i might be getting overexcited about this and misrepresenting it but is so obviously as you mentioned earlier he adopts a reading of hobbes that says hobbes is making a political intervention and hobbes is trying to tell us we should be terrified <laughs> of what life is like unless we decide this person or this body is sovereign let them be sovereign because otherwise you wind up with the english civil war 
I think I, I've mentioned, I just did a lecture on sovereign territoriality and I talked about Baudin, right? It is probably not accidental that all these theories of, all these theories of sovereignty are emerging in the early modern period during wars of reformation. And a lot of them are actually the products biographically of these very bloody awful wars of religion, uh, with, you know, civil wars, what we now call a civil war of religion. But so we normally think about anarchy and sovereignty as co-constituent. Anarchy is a logical implication of a sovereign state system, because if every state claims exclusive jurisdiction over its own territory, then there can be, by definition, no common governing authority. But his argument here is more that anarchy is a projection of the anxieties of the sovereign about its domestic system. Anarchy is a fearful place primarily because we're channeling all of that stuff that we're afraid of domestically into anarchy so we can crystallize it as anarchy and then mobilize to defend ourselves against it in, in ways that then help to constitute sovereignty itself. But it is Hobbes, right? Because for Hobbes, you have the domestic state of nature, which is really awful. But when you have a bunch of really well-armed sovereigns, the kind of state of nature that obtains is not like the domestic state of nature. It is much more tolerable. This is what Michael Williams will do. It's what um, Charlie Epstein has done. It's a lot of people, there's a long tradition of trying to take away canonical theorists from the realists, usually by doing deeper readings than are common in the realist employment of them, and this is a, a good example of that. That's the end of part one. So long. Goodbye. Have a good one. See you next time.